Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Now, who remembers what it was like learning how to swim? I mean, we live in a community here. We got lots of pools, and, and hopefully everybody here knows how to, knows how to swim. But when you, when you first went to the pool, how did you view the deep end? Kind of scary, probably, at first. Or some of you, like Tom, probably just went and did a big cannonball into it. I can picture Tom, Tom doing that. But the deep end can be very scary, my daddy in Savannah, when he was growing up, he had a brother named Ralph, my Uncle Ralph, and my Uncle Ralph drowned at three years old. Uh, it was in the Saltwater Creek that the East lived on there in, in Savannah. It's called Herb Creek. This prompted my grandmother East to give swim lessons. For the rest of her life, she taught swim lessons to kids through the Red Cross. So at a very early age, I don't remember how old, but so long ago that I can't even remember, I was taken by my grandmother East to this pool, I can picture where it is, and the street that it's on there in Savannah, to learn how to swim. And so I've always been comfortable in the water, including the deep end, because my grandmother was there with me. And I knew I couldn't, couldn't drown. And if you remember how scary the deep end was uh, before you learned how to swim, and you remember how you, how you felt in the deep end, in the deep water, with an adult there with you, then you'll understand what we're going to be talking about this morning in the message. We're going to start at Mark chapter 9. We're making our way through the gospel of Mark. We started back in in October, and we just passed the apex, the the midpoint. Mark's gospel is 16 chapters. Actually, it's about 15 and a half, because the last chapter is kind of like a half a chapter, and we'll discuss all that later. But we just finished chapter 8 last week. And it's incredible the Lord's timing, how, how what came up last week with Jesus' altar call, Jesus' invitation to discipleship, just happened to come on Easter or Resurrection Sunday, which I thought was, was way cool. So let's start at, at verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. It says, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Mark puts a parenthetical remark in there. And you got to remember, who was Mark's source? Peter. And so there's this parenthesis in there. It says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Have you ever had times when you didn't know what to say? And you said something. You know, Peter was always wanting to talk, but he admits here, hey, I just want to say something. It says in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. 
Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Now, this, this incident here in Mark chapter 9, which is also included in Matthew and um, in Luke's Gospels, this is called the transfiguration, a real long word, the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're going to describe and, and talk about what that word means in a few minutes. It's also described, as I said, in Matthew and, and Luke. And to understand the transfiguration and why it's important, we need to remember the context. The first half of the book of Mark that we just finished was about answering the question, who is Jesus? It culminated with Peter's great declaration in the middle of Mark chapter 8 that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus said, you know, you didn't know this on your own, Peter. The Father in heaven revealed this to you. But moments after Peter recognized Jesus as the Christ, Jesus turns the conversation in another direction, a direction that Peter wasn't prepared for. Jesus started telling them that as the Christ, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. He must die and then rise from the dead. To Peter and the other disciples, this did not make sense. This didn't fit their vision. This didn't fit their paradigm of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They were brought up on the belief that the Christ, the Messiah, would come, and he would be a political Messiah. He would overthrow the Roman government. He would set up an earthly kingdom, and he would make Jerusalem the capital of the world. And Peter was so upset at Jesus for, for talking like this that he, afterwards he pulled Jesus aside, and the Scripture tells us that Peter started to rebuke Jesus. Then Jesus, in turn, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of the Father, the things of God on the mind. You're thinking like the world thinks. You see, Peter could, could, not, could, could not imagine the Christ dying. And Jesus said, there's no Christ without the cross. And that brought us to the passage that we studied last week where Jesus is, with Jesus' altar call or his invitation that we looked at, where Jesus says that anyone, say it with me, anyone, anyone, anyone that would want to follow Jesus can come. But they must deny themselves. They must pick up their cross and follow him. Again, this doesn't... Peter and the boys had a problem understanding this. If anyone wants to be a disciple, they need to live their lives for Christ and even be willing to lose their lives for Christ. And this didn't end at the end of the apostolic era, at the end of the dying of the, of the 12 there, folks. It con continues even in today, as we talked about last week. I don't know about you, that sounds a bit scarier than diving into the deep end of the pool. If anyone was going to live his or her life for Christ and maybe even lose their life for Jesus, wouldn't it be easier to know if there was someone in the deep end of the pool with you, someone who is bigger than you, someone who is, who is stronger than you, someone who can carry you through the scary situations? Well, today we meet that person. We see that person. God gives us a glimpse of that person in the transfiguration of what we have to help us live 
for Christ. It's Jesus in all of his glory and all of his power. Now, Jesus promised here in the first part of this passage, he promised to strengthen the faith of some. It tells us in verse 1, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. We just passed the first fill in the blank. If you're so caught up in this, you haven't started filling your blanks. <clears throat> He'll strengthen the faith of some. Now, as we, looked at the first, as we look at the first verse, we run across one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. It's a verse used by many who try to discredit the Bible. They try to prove the Bible wrong. Because it says that standing with Jesus at that moment were some that would not taste death. In other words, that means they would not die before they saw the kingdom of God come in power. So this sounds like, like some people around Jesus would, would not die before he returns. And in the preceding verse, which in verse 38 of chapter 8, which we read last week, Jesus was talking about the day of judgment, about the day that he would return in, in glory and power. The verse before, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so the thinking is, it seems logical, the next verse is a continuation of the conversation and, return of Je and Jesus' return at the end of history. But that's the problem there. It's obvious that everybody was there in verse 1 has died. Unless any of you have seen Peter, James, and John, and one of the other disciples, one of the 12, you let me know. Kind of like the Elvis sightings, right? Obviously, everyone that was there has died. And so many people say this proves, this proves the Bible is wrong. It cannot be trusted. So is that the right answer? No, the Bible can be trusted. That's kind of the whole thrust of this message today. Did Jesus blow it on this one, or did he kind of get messed up or, or confused here? Well, I believe that there's another answer. I believe that there's a more obvious answer that is sitting right, or, right underneath our noses here that many people miss, and, I, and this is what it is. Instead of referring to Jesus as returning in glory and power in the previous verse at the end of the age, maybe this is referring to Jesus' display of glory and power in the subsequent story which comes next in Mark's gospel, the transfiguration, which happened only six days later. And that would make logical sense, and it would also perfectly explain the verses here. Jesus just finished talking about his return in power and glory and judgment at the end of the time. And in the transfiguration, the verses that follow, we see Jesus doing exactly what he said would happen in this verse. He took some of that group, Peter, James, and Don, three, the, the inner three within his core there. And he took them up on a high mountain. Doesn't say a little hill. It says a high mountain. That's going to be important later whenever I point something out to you. Where he was transfigured before them so that they saw the glory and the power of Jesus, not at the end of time, but in the middle of time. The transfiguration I submit to you was a preview of the glory and power of Jesus given in mid-time. It was a preview of what Jesus will look like when he returns in glory and power at the end of time. And Peter, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was there. He told us that the Transfiguration was a preview of Jesus' glory and power. Last, last year, we, we taught through uh, Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter. We didn't get to 2 Peter. And, but in, in Peter's second epistle, he says this. In 2 Peter 1, beginning of verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. In other words, we didn't make all this stuff up when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. 
For he received honor and glory from God the Father. When? When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves... Again, he's speaking as an eyewitness. He says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him. Now, some of you may say, oh, well, this, this was said back at, at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. No. When we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter is referring in his second epistle to this instance on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. So Peter says we're not following a myth when we talked about Jesus one day returning in power and glory. He knew that Jesus was going to come in power and glory. He knew that was the truth because he had had the preview. He'd seen the trailer before it was going to happen. Now, why was he so confident? Because he was an eyewitness. He was one of the eyewitnesses of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter said we saw his glory. We heard the voice of God the Father saying that Jesus was his son. Now, later in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Peter's talking about how some were saying that Jesus would not return, but Peter disagreed because he said, I've already seen the preview. I know it's going to be released. I know it's coming, it's coming out. He's going to come back in power and glory. So why did the transfiguration take place? Well, it did not take place for Peter's entertainment, I assure you. It took place to help Peter, James, and John understand the true identity of Jesus so that when it came time to learn to swim in the deep end, in other words, to deny themselves, to pick up their own crosses, and to follow him and possibly lose their lives, which they all three did for his sake, that they would know who was with them in those last days. <clears throat> they had Jesus with them, filled with power and glory. And if that wouldn't encourage them in those hard times, I don't know what would. Now let's look at the transfiguration itself and, and what happened on that mountain. The first thing we see is we see Jesus strengthened the faith of Peter, James, and John by the transfiguration. He, re, he was revealed in power and glory. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And as I said, Matthew and Luke also write of this transfiguration. And as we study the transfiguration this morning, I'm going to bring in extra details that these other two gospel writers tell us to help fill in the gaps, fill in the story, make the story more complete than what just Mark gives us here. Mark says it was six days after Jesus gave us his, his hard sermon and the altar call that we studied last week when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up on this high mountain. And if you notice in Mark, Mark as the author almost never includes time references in his, in his book. He likes to use the, use the word immediately. I pointed that out to you way back in the fall, those of you that were here then, that you know, go through your Bible, go through Mark's gospel, and, and circle the, the, the words immediately, or the, maybe translate in your, in your, in your uh, translation the words at once. You know, Mark tells us it's, it's a gospel of motion. It's a gospel of action. It's a very simply written gospel. It's kind of like, as we've said, it's kind of like the see dick, see dick, run, see spot. Da, da, da. That, that's kind of the way Mark's gospel is. He doesn't go into all this explanations and stuff like Matthew does, or certainly not like John does. John, who's here in the, in the ether writing. And the only other reference to time in Mark's gospel is when he talks about Jesus' resurrection on the third day. And it leaves us realizing there, there, there must be a very good reason why Mark 
use this reference about the six days here after Jesus' tough sermon. And it turns out that there is a very good reason to specify these six days. Mark was trying to help us make a connection with something else that happened previously in Scripture. And this was Mount Sinai back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. He's trying to make a, a connection between Mount Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration. Because the Mount of Transfiguration parallels Mount Sinai. Let me show you some of the ways that, the, the, that there's the parallels between them, how they're similar, and I'll show you some ways that they're different. It says that Jesus, you know, Jesus' and disciples, they went to hear uh, from God six days after, uh, after the last uh, episode that we saw. And after going up to Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, verse 16, it tells us that Moses heard from God after six days. The specific time reference was there for a reason. Exodus 24, 15, and 16 says this, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So Jesus went up to the mountain, and he went and took three disciples with him. Well, Moses, when he went up on the mountain, Exodus 24 tells us, God had said to Moses, take with you Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, three priests up there with him. Jesus takes three disciples. Moses took up three of the priests. On the mountain, Jesus radiated the glory of God. Moses experienced the glory of God on the mountain. Now, there's a big difference there. Jesus radiated. He was the source of the radiance that was coming there because he is God himself, and God pulled back the veil, as it were, on Jesus' radiance. Now, Moses only reflected the glory of God after he had spent time up there. We're told back there in Exodus that when Moses came down off the mountain, Moses had to wear a veil over his face because the radiance of God was too much for the Israelites to look upon Moses' face. And, but Moses, Moses had kind of faded after a while. Moses was kind of like one of the, it'd, it'd be like he's kind of a, a giant human-sized glow-in-the-dark sticker. Remember those as a kid? You know, you put them up next to the light and, and you have them in your bedroom and then after a couple of days they kind of fade away unless you put them in front of the light again. That's kind of how it was with Moses. Jesus is the light. He's the source. God the Father appeared in a cloud, and he spoke from a cloud at both Mount Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration. So there's intentionality in that. Now let's look at how they're different. The big difference is on Mount Sinai, God gave us the law, which none of us are able to keep. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God gave us his Son, who kept the law for us, then died in our place to give us life. Mount Sinai led to death. Jesus leads to life. The Mount of Transfiguration gave us Jesus. And the Mount of Transfiguration is a new, a, a better version, if you will, of Mount Sinai. Now let's look at, at where this took place. Now it probably took place on Mount Hermon. I'm sorry if you've been, to, been over there to Israel and this doesn't square with what some of your guides might have told you because the tour guides over there, they'll tell you that it happened at Mount Tabor. I'm going to tell you the reasons. Uh, most scholars, most biblical scholars do not believe it was at Mount Tabor. But you see where Mount Tabor is here, down at the, the bottom of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. You see up here where Mount Hermon is. Now where was Jesus over the last couple weeks? Where, did, where was he located? Where did Peter make his great confession? Where at? The city that was named after Caesar. Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus is up there. Mount Tabor is very short. It's too short. It's actually less than 2,000 feet. And what did we just read? What did I emphasize as we were reading through this? It was a high mountain. It was a high mountain. So Mount Tabor is too short. 
It's barely even a mountain to some people. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high. Our local Mount San Jacinto over here, where the tram goes up to, that's 10,800 feet. So that's kind of in the range up there. It's taller than, than Mount Hermon is. Secondly, Mount Tabor, during this time of Jesus, had a city at the top of it which wouldn't make for a great place to take your three disciples and, and get away. And Luke tells us that it took them two days to climb up to the mountain. It's not going to take two days to go up 1,800 feet where there's a city. You could probably do that in, in a couple hours. Uh, those of you that hike, uh, Judy and, and Lou, I know like to hike out here. Now, the other thing is Mount Tabor, as you see up there, is nowhere near Caesarea Philippi where Jesus is currently located in that area with his disciples. So Mount Hermon is probably, we believe, where it took place. I'm sorry to the tour guides over in Israel. So what happened on the mountain? Jesus revealed his glory. They got to the top, and, and Mark says that he was transfigured before them. The Greek word that's used here is metamorpho, from which we get our term metamorphosis. Most of us, when we were in grade school, learned about you know, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, how it was changed. It was metamorphosized into the, into the butterfly. So Jesus went through a metamorphosis here. He was completely changed in the way that he looked. Even his clothes changed. They became radiant. Uh, he changed the, to the point that they began to shine. Shininess of the, of the clothes was so intense, so white, that even Clorox couldn't bleach them that white. And this is where some extra details from, from Matthew and Luke begin to be helpful. Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Luke says it was as Jesus was praying that all of this took place. Apparently, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on this mountain for a prayer meeting, okay? And we're going to see what they were doing in here in a minute. But like Mark said, Jesus' face was altered, and his clothing, his clothing shone. And Luke says that it became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, I've seen a lot of storms and a lot of lightning out over the sea and stuff in my time out at sea. And the, probably the neatest, the neatest lightning storm I ever saw in my entire life was Lou and I were celebrating our anniversary. We've done it a couple times up at St. Simon Island up in Georgia. And this one night, we were staying in a place. We were right there on the beach. And it's the most beautiful lightning storm you'll ever see. Just, it was just fun sitting there on the porch and just watching the lightning just light up the sky for a couple hours. So the next time you, you see lightning just light up the sky at night, think that's kind of the radiance, the brightness of Jesus coming, coming through. Think of Jesus in his clothing. It tells us in Matthew 17, 2, that his face shone like the sun. The light came off of Jesus' face, and it, it was bright as the sun. I mean, how many of you can look and stare at the sun? I don't know about you, but I can't. You can't stare at the sun. It was, it's just too bright. Matthew also mentions that his clothing became white as light. And this transfiguration was quite impressive. It made quite the impression. What wasn't impressing was what Peter, James, and John were doing. Now, it's interesting. Peter doesn't mention this to Mark and doesn't have Mark include this in, in the account. But Luke tells on him. It says in Luke 9.32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. And instead of praying, what were they doing? They were catching some Z's. They were taking a nap. So apparently, the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't the first time that they'd fallen asleep on Jesus. But after they opened their eyes and they saw Jesus bright as the sun, I'm sure they were awake in a, in a real hurry here. So what happened? 
Well, up to this point on earth, Jesus had appeared as a normal, ordinary human being, much as you or I had. He was, he was, he was God incarnate in the flesh. He chose to empty himself, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, of, 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 his, of his prerogatives and, 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 and his, his glory. He emptied himself so that he could come, born as a, as a humble baby in a manger. On the Mount of Transfiguration, for a little bit of time, a wee bit of time, God pulled back the veil of his humanity and let Peter, James, and John see what Jesus looks like in all of his glory, might, and power. And Jesus had told his disciples that he would suffer and die and rise again. He also told his disciples that anyone who follows him must deny themselves and, and follow him and be willing to suffer for him. And that's scary, as I said, like jumping in the deep end. It's worse even than jumping in the deep end of the pool. And after seeing Jesus in all of his glory, this was a visual, this is an experience that Peter, James, and John could take with them, and they could remember when that time came for them. And as we're going to see, it's going to have usefulness. Jesus says, don't talk about it now. But later, after he rose again, they could tell the other folks, hey, when you're in that time, when, you, when, you're, when you're facing persecution, when you're, when you're facing the, the lions, when you're facing people that, that want to do you in, when you're facing people that want to, want to persecute you for your faith, when you may lose your very life, let me tell you, remember the mountain. Remember the transfiguration. Well, also on the mountain, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. And these are two of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. It says in verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. So Jesus is having his prayer time while Peter, James, and John were, were, were sleeping. And, and then they open their eyes half awake, and they see Jesus glowing like the sun. As they're watching, they see two other dudes standing there, and they're talking with Jesus. And they, Moses and Elijah, and don't ask me how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. God didn't think it was important for us to know. You know, maybe they introduced themselves. You know, hey, Pete, I'm, I'm Mo. You know, something like that. You know, maybe they were wearing little church name tags. Don't know. Maybe they recognized them from their Facebook pictures. What we do know is what Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus. We don't know it from Mark's gospel, but we know it from Luke's. Luke says two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Notice this. They're also reflecting the glory of God. They're talking with Jesus. They spoke about what? About his departure. About his departure, which was, he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Jesus was going to die in Jerusalem, and he was going to rise again. And apparently Moses and Elijah were giving Jesus some kind of encouragement for the hard path that, he was, that was in front of him as he was preparing to die for sin. Now, interestingly, the word here for departure is exodus. That's, you look in Greek, that's what it is. It's the word exodus. And just as Moses led the exodus of God's people out of physical slavery and physical death in the land of Egypt, Jesus was going to be a second and greater Moses as he leads us out of spiritual death in the relationship with God. We already know that Jesus was, was glowing with, with glory as bright as the sun, his clothes was flashing white as, as lightning. And when Mo and Eli showed up to talk with Jesus, they were glowing as well. But there's a difference because Jesus is the source. He's the source of all light and all glory. Moses and Elijah were reflecting that light and glory. They weren't the source, they were reflecting. And this appears to be a very similar experience to what happened, as I said before, when Moses came down off the mountain back in, back in Exodus. Now, our beloved Peter, who we've seen suffers from foot and mouth disease, 
does it again. In verse 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's great for us to be up here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then again, a parenthetical remark. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I can see Peter talking about, you know, dude, I, 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 I was speechless, but so I just said something. I said whatever came to my mind, which sometimes is dangerous in Peter's case, as well as mine. Peter's mouth was always getting him in trouble. Later before the cross, he would deny Jesus three times, and, and he, he had just finished a couple weeks ago being rebuked by Jesus for telling Jesus, dude, you aren't going to the cross. That ain't the way it's going to happen. Let me tell you how it's going to happen, Christ. That's a scary thing, and we looked at that ways a couple weeks ago that we do that, when we tell God that we know better than God. And if you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you can go back and get the podcast online. So now Peter puts his foot in his mouth again, telling Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, hey, I'm going to build you some shelters. Looks like you guys need a place to say, you need a park model. Let me put a park model up for each one of you. And so then Luke tells us, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said, Master, it's good for us to be up here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And again, Luke says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. Peter was thrilled to have Elijah and Moses there, all glowing in front of him. Earlier, Peter had been convinced that Jesus would introduce this new earthly kingdom. And, and I'm sure Peter thought, oh, man, we got these two guys returned back. This is really going to be the time. We're going to sock it to, sock it to the Romans. But the problem is Moses and Elijah were fading away. And as they faded away, Peter saw his dreams of the kingdom coming with power fade away again. So he thought, well, if I, maybe if I put up, put up some shelters here, they'll stay. They'll stay with us. So Peter's opening his mouth, and he's, and he's spouting off this silly idea about building shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah so they would stay. And, and look what happens next. God the Father has something to say about Peter and his plans. It tells us on the mountain that the God the Father rebuked Peter. It says, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, this wasn't just any cloud. This wasn't one of these neat lenticular clouds. I know that word because Barb taught it to me years ago. These lenticular clouds that you see out here in the desert. Cloud came up. It, wasn't just, it was the Shekinah glory of God that's talked about in the Old Testament. It's the same cloud that, that led God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness. This was the same cloud that covered the top of Mount Sinai. This was the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. This was the cloud that appears numerous times in the Old Testament and was the manifestation of God the Father's presence with us. The cloud suddenly showed up not after Peter was done. Now, you might think that if you read Mark's account that Peter was a source for, but we're going to see here in a minute. It wasn't after Peter was done speaking, but the cloud showed up and enveloped them while Peter was speaking. And God the Father rebuked Peter for his idea of making these tents and, and, and keeping them there so that Jesus couldn't continue on his mission on to Jerusalem. In Mar Matthew chapter 17, it tells us while he was speaking. In other words, Peter was like mid-sentence. While he was still speaking, a brow cloud enveloped him, and a voice said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God the Father basically interrupted Peter and his plans and told him, Hey, this is my son. Pay attention. Listen up. Luke tells us also in verse uh, 34 of chapter 9, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped him, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud said, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
So Peter's now been rebuked by Jesus. He's been rebuked by God the Father. And Matthew tells us in chapter 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. Now, I'll tell you, without, without question, this is the craziest prayer meeting that probably ever, ever happened. And I doubt if any of you have been to a prayer meeting this crazy. I'm sure that they felt bad, that they started out with them sleeping. But after seeing the glory of Jesus and, and being rebuked by God the Father for not listening, I'm sure this, this, this prayer meeting had a lasting effect on them. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he basically told them, don't talk about this to the other nine. Don't talk about that to the others until after I've arisen. Unlike many of the other people in this gospel, they actually listened to Jesus, and they didn't talk about it until after the transfiguration. And I think this had such a profound effect on them. If you think about staring into the sun or, or what's going on here, the, the voice of God coming down, this, this really affected them, and they didn't do it. Now they understood the true identity of Jesus, and, and, and because so, they had more questions for Jesus. More information oftentimes begets more questions. And so Jesus strengthened the disciples' faith by answering some tough Bible questions that they, that they put out there. It tells us in verse 11, And they asked him, Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And we just saw Elijah. Why do the teachers of the law say and Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. If Jesus is the Messiah, they were having trouble understanding some of the verses in the Bible, that they, in their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures they knew. They said, if you're the Christ, where, where was Elijah? Did we miss it? Is, is that all it is? Is just this cameo appearance here on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration? They were struggling to understand a prophecy from the very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Well, Peter had just seen Elijah, and, and Peter had offered to build Elijah a, a booth, a tabernacle, a tent, a park model, but, but Elijah disappeared. He's like, is that it? Is that all? And before Jesus answered their question, he gave, them a, he gave them a tough Bible question to ponder. He said, why then, in verse 12, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Jesus could have shown them a hundred passages from the Old Testament. And this one from, from Isaiah chapter 53 speaks chiefly about the suffering and the dying for our sin, not just about being a conquering Messiah as they had in their minds. It tells us in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was written eight centuries before Jesus came in the flesh. It's like these words were written at the foot of the cross. Then Jesus says these words, But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Jesus said that the prophecy in Malachi about Elijah coming has been fulfilled. It already happened, and they did to him whatever they pleased. Well, Matthew fills in for us here. Matthew in 17, 11 says this, Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them 
about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the type of Elijah that came before Jesus' ministry, the one who prepared the way, of the, the way of the Lord, the one who proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who was calling the Jews to repentance, the one that Jesus went to and said, baptize me. And John said, cousin, me baptize you. And Jesus said, do this. It must, it must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. They knew the stories about John the Baptist, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand what had happened. That this was the type. This was Elijah that had come before Jesus. Now, it may seem a little unfair to, to you and me that Peter, James, and John, they got to experience the transfiguration. It's an amazing experience. And we may be sitting here, you may be sitting there thinking, well, if I had an experience like that, wouldn't it be easier to follow Jesus today? Wouldn't it be easier to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow Jesus if we'd been up on this 10,000-foot mountain and, and see all this, even if we had fallen asleep in the, in the beginning? Wouldn't it be easier to live for Jesus and even lose our lives like Jesus if we could see the one, if we had seen with our physical eyes the one who had gone before us, if we had seen Jesus in all of his transfiguration glory? Well, I have some bad news for you, and I have some good news for you. The bad news is this side of heaven we won't see Jesus as he was in his transfiguration glory. The good news is that God has something even better for you and me than the transfiguration that was for Peter, James, and John. And what I'm talking about here is that Jesus strengthens our faith with something even better than transfiguration, as hard as it may seem to believe. I'm going to let Peter answer the question himself. I'm going to let Peter tell you what it is. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we've already read this. I'm going to read it again to you. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God. The Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says we were on the mountain with Jesus. We saw his glory. But Peter continues in 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 19. He says this, And we have the word of the prophets. The word of the prophets. What is that? That's scripture. He's referring to scripture. He says we have the word of the prophets made more certain the word of the prophets made more certain. In other words, this is better than any experience that I had was to have the word of God. And you will do well. Peter's not just talking to the people in first century in Rome, the people undergoing persecution, his, his audience. He's talking to you and me here in year 2022 in Southern California in Sky Valley. He says, you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. If you were trying to get out of a dark place and you saw a light shining, wouldn't you want to follow that light? Wouldn't you want to use that light to get out of whatever darkness, wherever you were, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart? He's referring to Christ here. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's interpretation. In other words, this wasn't just some guys, again, making up myths and making up fantasies and writing fanciful stories about Jesus. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's telling us a whole lot in this paragraph about Scripture and the importance of Scripture in the life of a Jesus follower, in the life of, a, of an apprentice of Jesus, in the life of someone that's, that's going to be a disciple of Jesus. 
He said that the Bible, the word of the prophets, made certain that we have in our hands has greater faith-confirming, greater faith-building power than any experience. And we will develop greater faith in Christ, greater courage to live for Christ from our Bible than going through an experience like they went there. And this is why Peter said that we would do well to pay attention to the Scripture like a light shining in a dark place. I don't know about you, but in our busy world, in our busy lives, I think it's very easy to ignore God's book. It's difficult. We have to be intentional to spend time in his word. Peter said we must remember the power of the Bible that we have available to us. The Bible, God's word, is capable of giving us a a picture of Jesus in his might, his glory and power that's a better vision than the transfiguration. It's capable of developing our faith and giving us more confidence in the Christ than the transfiguration ever could. So we must pay attention to it. Don't be distracted away from it. Peter says everyone who holds a Bible in their hands has the capability of seeing Jesus even better than he did in the transfiguration in even greater glory. And the challenge I leave with you today is this. Will you trust the scriptures to reveal the glory of Christ? What a story. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.